Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. India's not even anywhere near its sort of peak of rural urban migration. So most of these families are moving from the countryside into the city looking for better work opportunities. And they're going to be another 100 million flooding that market in the next 10 years is the estimate in India. The scale of movement is way beyond what the local governments are able to handle at the moment. Yes, this time we're with the incredibly resourceful Alexi Seller. CEO of Pollinate Energy, a genius startup transforming the lives of those living in the slums of India by helping people to access clean energy solutions. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is episode 53 of the Better Business Show. Very much appreciate you coming back to us and tuning in. Um, Last week's show with Paul Lindley and Ella's Kitchen went down an absolute storm. Uh, so thanks for each of you for listening and for sharing and for loving it and for all the feedback on that episode. It was a, it was a really special one. Uh, and we've got another great story for you coming up this week in the form of Pollinate Energy. And we have the incredibly and ridiculously young and ridiculously inspiring CEO and co-founder of the business, uh, Alexi Seller. That's all coming up. And as so often happens here at the Better Business Show, I get approached by lots of people uh, every week with great stories of sustainable business all the time. And some, and actually most of them, are stories that lend themselves perfectly to the Better Business Show treatment. So an associate of Alexis uh, got in touch a few weeks back and we worked up a a plan of, of making this recording happen this week. And the only reason I mention this is because, you know, I'd love to hear of many more stories of better business that you, our dear listeners, might have up your sleeve. You know the drill by now, and you know the sorts of stories and companies and startups and enterprises that we have on the show each week. So, you know, if you fancy being a part of it, or you know of a fantastic example of the sort of thing we want to showcase here, then please do get in touch. You can find me on Twitter, at Tom Idle. You can email me, tomidle at narrativematters.co.uk. You can find me on LinkedIn, just search for Tom Idle Narrative Matters, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Anyway, let's get on with this week's show. Globally, there are more than 1.3 billion people that do not have access to electricity, and 300 million of those people are living in India, a country so often talked about as being in the midst of a rapid economic development. Yet 25% of people there still can't get onto the electricity grid. As a result, kerosene fuel still dominates, particularly across slum communities. A breakthrough discovery when it was invented by Canadian physician and geologist Abraham Pino Gesner, kerosene was cheaper and cleaner burning than its existing counterparts and far easier to source. That was back in 1846, almost 170 years ago. Today, kerosene has been rightly displaced by modern energy services, which provide far superior heating and lighting. However, hundreds of millions of people across India still rely on kerosene as their primary source of light. Burning kerosene for light, particularly in poorly ventilated confines of a tent home, contributes to indoor air pollution. And this pollution causes respiratory illness, which is the second largest cause of premature death in women and young children in Indian slums. When kerosene is burnt, it it releases particulate matter, carbon monoxide, sulphur dioxide and various nitrogen oxides, seriously bad news for our health and well-being. 
It's not just the fuel source, but also the quality of light, which is important to a person's well-being. Quality of light greatly affects the type of activities that can be performed with the available light. A typical kerosene lamp delivers between one and six lux of light. Take, for example, a typical Western standard, which actually suggests a minimum of 300 lux for tasks like reading. To make matters worse, the flickering quality of a kerosene lamp affects the ability to read using that light, and over time, blacking of the outside of the lamp's plastic container further reduces the effective light output. With hundreds of millions of people across the globe relying on kerosene as a fuel source, many millions of tonnes of carbon are emitted into the atmosphere every year. As with any combustible fuel, the efficiency with which they are burnt largely dictates their emissions intensity. The typical kerosene lamp found in the community is inefficient, which means that for every litre of kerosene burnt, around 2.5 kilograms of carbon dioxide is produced. So what can be done to turn the tide on the use of kerosene and dirty cookstoves in slums across the world? Our guest this week believes she has at least part of the answer. Pollinate Energy's mission is simple, to improve the lives of India's urban poor by giving them access to life-changing affordable products. With a focus on sustainable solutions such as solar lights, water filters and improved cook stoves, people are able to reduce indoor smoke, have better quality light, use less fuel and save money. Of course, it's no walking the park. As co-founder and CEO of the organisation, Alexi Seller tells me this week. Alexi, thank you for being here on the Better Business Show. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, set the scene for me. You're in India right now. Uh, where exactly are you and, and you know, what are you looking at right now? I am. I am in our headquarters in Bangalore, which is in India's south. It's one of India's largest cities. There's about 15 million people here. Um, our office looks out over a neighborhood school, actually. So the kids are out playing and having lunch <laughs> right now. Um, and we have our team in the next room who are all getting prepared to head out into the field this afternoon. Okay, great. So let's get into the detail then. As I often ask my guests to do when we first start chatting, give me the pitch. What is it you're trying to do with Pollinate Energy? <laughs> yeah, Good question. Um, we are all about bringing life-changing products to people who desperately need them. Um, and those people for us are poor families living in India who are, who are very marginalized and rely on things like kerosene for lighting and campfire stoves for cooking and dirty water. Um, and we find products that are more sustainable, cheaper in the long run, um, and improve their daily quality, quality of life. And then we help them access those products on payment plans. Okay. So there's there's various sort of elements to your business, I guess. Where does it sort of start and stop? You say you, you help them find the products and you help finance them. Um, what, what don't you do? What element don't yeah. you do? Yeah. So what we actually do is we have a, um, we have a, a team of, of what we call our pollinators. Um, and they are people who um, are sort of self-starting entrepreneurs. We recruit them and we train them up. And then they service a network of slums in their city. So they go out every day in the slums with a backpack of um, products like solar lights and clean cook stoves. And then they offer those products to families living in the slums. And right. then they take payment on payment plans from those families. 
Okay, okay. Tell, tell us a bit more about the kind of the, 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 you know, the real problems you're trying to solve here. For lots of our listeners tuning in, they won't have been to, you know, some of these slums in India. What, what, what's, what is the, the, you know, obviously massive social issues there, but, but ex- explain a bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So when I say slum in India, um, a lot of people sort of automatically jump to Dharavi slum in Mumbai, which is one of the biggest slums um, in the world located near the airport in Mumbai. Um, But in actual fact, we're talking about people who are a number of income brackets lower than that. Um, So they don't have stable housing. They live in a a sort of a tarpaulin tent structure. Um, They live on government land or some private land, and they're often paying bribes to be there. They may not be registered in that state, and they're they're incredibly marginalized um, and can't access any other NGO or microfinance services because they're seen as just too temporary and too difficult to deal with. Mm. Um, and when we started getting into these communities, we, um, you know, from the outset, they look like they've just set up camp yesterday, but we realized that they'd actually been there for five to 10 years um, nice. in that same location. And they're nowhere near as transient as people think. So um, we kind of came in and, and looked at the, the solutions they had, particularly kerosene in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and we're quite alarmed to find out how much money they were spending on kerosene are spending about one one US dollar a week, which is almost 20% of their income. Wow. And um, they have to spend that money every week for light, which is really, really poor quality. Yeah. Um, so we decided to set up a program that could deliver better solutions to that um, in a way that they can afford um, that will stop them using those harmful toxic fuels and, and, and wasting money on things they don't need to spend on. Yeah, and we're, and we're talking largely about solar panel kind of technology, are we? Correct. Yeah. So the, the major the major product we have is a solar lantern. Um, it essentially they can um, buy a solar lantern product which has a panel, an LED light, and a battery unit, um, which also charges a, a mobile phone. Um, that that costs about thirty five US dollars, and they pay that off over five weeks. Um, so within okay. a few months, they break even on that investment, and they start saving quite a lot of money each year. Wow! 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 And so the communities that you're serving serving uh, there, how, how do you kind of choose where to go? I mean, presumably this, the the world is your oyster in terms of where you can have the impact, who you can help. How how do you go through that process? That's a really great question. So, I mean, the communities we're serving are the most marginalized and least identified communities in these cities. Um, Even Bangaloreans that we take out on the field to kind of visit these slums say they've never even noticed them being there. Um, So we have to to go out and find them ourselves. Um, We actually do that through a combination of Google satellite mapping, um, identifying regions that look like slums and and then validating that on the ground. Um, and in terms of selecting then whether we choose to serve them, um, it's really really what we found is it's kind of based on the city um, structure, what kind of activities have happened there previously, whether the government is already working on these initiatives. So, for example, I mentioned Mumbai earlier. We visited Mumbai a year ago and did a series of 300 surveys across different slums and city and determined that actually um, most of those families had more product and finance access than we could even um, offer them. So they were already kind of well beyond the need for support that Pollinate could bring. Um, so instead, we've moved to an alternative city, Lucknow, which is a smaller city in India, only 5 million people. Um, but they have really large populations of people living in these tent slums who just don't have any access to sustainable products or, or finance services. Um, so we make our decision based on, I guess, need, whether we think we can genuinely help these people and also viability in the market. So whether this is um, we're operating a social enterprise, so we need to assess whether it's a place we think we can operate 
for a reasonable length of time and set up a business of a certain scale that will, will sustain itself in the future. Yeah, I was, to be honest, that was one of my questions actually about what support is already out there across India for, from governments. But it sounds like there's, there's, mm. there's pockets of, of activity, but you're kind of filling in the gaps, as it were. Yeah, there are. And I mean, in Mumbai, it's, it's paramount because they're, they're geographically really restricted. It's a small sort of spit of land and they can't, they can't fit any more people in the city. Um, so they've really had to focus on that. But places like Bangalore and Lucknow are just sort of sprawling metropolises right now and they're, they're struggling to keep up with the influx. And India's not even anywhere near its sort of peak of rural urban migration. So most of these families are moving from the countryside into the city looking for better work opportunities and um, they're going to be another 100 million flooding that market in the next 10 years is wow. the estimate wow. in India. So the scale of movement is way beyond what, what the local governments are able to handle at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you talk about your products. Um, where, who, whose products are they? Are you making your own products or are you sourcing them from somewhere else? We don't make our own products. We, we source from other people. Um, we When we started up, we did start making our own products by piecing together um, different different pieces of equipment from um, multiple suppliers. But we found that, um, which, which is a common myth with poor people, that, that they would prefer a cheaper product that they can kind of, you know, self-maintain. But we found that the servicing needs were just way too high. Um, we couldn't actually handle the manufacturing side as well as the distribution side. Yeah. And uh, we started selling an off-the-shelf product in parallel, which was almost 60% more in cost, and it actually sold better um, and we realize that just the, the quality and warranty support, so we offer one to two year warranties based on the product, are so valuable to these families who have such little income security. Um, any investment they make is they really think about and they want something that's going to last for a long time. Um, so we realize that we'd be better placed focusing our efforts on finding these communities and distribution and payment plans. Um, and then we allow our suppliers to innovate on products and provide us with really good service. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a call to be made. Lots of companies like your, like yours that quite early on, you have to make that decision about where you can have the most sort of value. And I guess your, your real value is on the ground, servicing, distributing, meeting these communities. I mean, what, what are the sort of skill sets that you're bringing here to, to do that? I mean, it's not, it must be so hard to rock up to a new community that you, you don't know and, and, and offer you and start offering this service. How, how does that work? How does that process work? Yeah, it, it is. It is definitely the harder part of the value chain. And it's actually why there's not that many people doing this work, especially with this community group. Um, in terms of in terms of how we set up the relationship, I guess we, we spend a lot of time working with if there's a new pollinator coming in, um, they spend a lot of time with experienced pollinators to learn about how to develop relationships in the communities. Um, but generally, the first entry is is actually a, a pleasant experience and a welcoming experience. More than anything, the communities are curious as to why we're in there. Um, we spend the first entry really talking about who we are as an organization and why we're there and, and what we're committing, um, that we're going to be around and we're going to help them. And, and, you know, we service products and we're not going to sort of just drop them and, and then leave. Um, and it might take a couple of visits before someone actually decides to buy one of the products. Um, but once that first sale is made, then they become sort of the representative in the community who, who sh- spreads word of mouth and tells everyone um, what the experience is like, you know, having a solar light instead of kerosene and how much more they can see at night and how much more um, work they can get done in the afternoons and that their kids can actually study. And all of those kinds of minutia details um, are really well communicated throughout the community um, by, by those customers. So it's it's really important we sort of get those first people on board 
Um, and then the pollinator can come back in and start to have more and more, more progress as they continue to visit. Yeah, I, I love this idea of, of the pollinator. Where did that idea come from? Is that borrowed from other sort of models in maybe different sectors? How, how did that come about? Yeah, it is. Um, we, we, as we came together as a founding team, there were, there were six of us from Australia who sort of brought a number of different experiences and skill sets to this. But we, um, we kind of looked at the problem we were seeing and that no other microfinance groups were willing to serve this community because they were too, too risky and we thought, you know, in essence, these people are just from rural India where there's already lots of microfinance activity and, and last mile distribution. And, um, you know, it's the same people. They're just in a different living situation. So we must be able to adopt practices from what's happening out there already. Um, and the, this concept of a village level entrepreneur, um, which is what it's called in rural um, environments, is is not new. I mean, solar has been distributed in this way for probably more than a decade by now. Um, and some of the bigger players like SolarAid out of the UK um, and Barefoot Power out of Australia have been doing this for a long time. Um, but instead of having one entrepreneur going from village to village um, who is quite remote and, and a lot of their problems are around, um, you know, getting stuck to that entrepreneur and keeping that entrepreneur motivated, we decided to set up a hub of entrepreneurs in a city that could go out from there and, and kind of service different communities in that city um, and it means that our, our pollinators are, you know, they're in our office twice a week. They're connecting with one another. They're, they're motivated together as a team. Um, they're very competitive, which also helps as they impact more families because of that. Um, and, and, you know, we can manage how we get stock out to them much more easily than if they were out there in a village on their own. Um, so we definitely picked that up from other models and just kind of adapted it so it fit the city environment a bit better. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. So, the, so the six of you, the founding uh, sort of partners of, of Pollinate Energy, what what were you all doing back in in Australia before all this happened? Um, yeah, a range of different things. I, I was actually working as a mechanical engineer. Um, I did engineering and arts, and had done a lot of international development work in my sort of time off, um, and then and then got into mechanical engineering and also renewable energy. So I was working in the energy sector in Australia. Um, but uh, other parts of our team, a couple of them had actually worked um, overseas. So Monique had done some rural solar um, work in Nepal and Jamie, another co-founder, had, had done work with um, the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh um, and Kat had also spent some time on the ground in Bangalore doing some willingness to pay research in these slums. So we kind of, um, and other co-founders equally, had done different work all around the world. So we all had different different experiences that allowed us to pull together this model that, that has worked really well. And so did you all know each other or not? Uh, I actually didn't. I, I met them through the process of founding the company, but some of them did know each other, yeah. It was, it was, it's sort of a complicated story when six people come together around an issue like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you, on, on your website, you do a good job actually of explaining the kind of the, the impact you're having. I mean, it, I guess giving, uh, making... You know, it affordable for a family to have a solar lamp in their home must be. I mean, the impact of that must be endless. Mm. Not, not just kind of you know making life a little easier, is it? We're we're talking about true, tr- you know, sort of transformational stuff. Um, how do you kind of measure that impact? Absolutely. That you're having? Um, we do a lot of impact measurement constantly in in our operations. So we're regularly checking in, interviewing customers to see what changes have happened in their lives. But alongside that, we also do like. A, um, a larger impact assessment that has both quantitative and qualitative assessments because, like you said, we can go out there and 
and sort of say, yes, they're saving um, one US dollar a week and it's 20% of their income that they've got back um, reinvested in their families. And there are numbers we can tie to it, but at the end of the day, a light, I mean, you and I use lighting all the time and we just take it for granted, but it is so critical um, to having a good quality of life in the home. Um, we had one customer, Amresh, who ran a small shop in a slum in Bangalore and he bought the lights so that he could keep his shop open later in the evening so when his customers came home from work, they would still buy products from him and he actually managed to save up enough money in four months to move his entire family out of the slum into an apartment um, wow. and, and have just more stable housing for his family, which is really improving quality of life of, of their kids. Um, and we've had other other people who just come back and say, like, life life is so much better in the evenings. I get to spend time with my kids and then I'm not worried about them sitting out on the street under a streetlight and playing. They can play with me inside inside the home where I know they're safe away from snakes and whatever else is out there. Um, there are just so many ways it impacts a family. And, and I think getting those stories is, is really important to us um, to understand what all those different types of impact are. And and I guess for, for you and, and, and the rest of your team there, that, that must be the, the thing that kind of drives you on, is it? Those kind of anecdotal insights into how you're changing people's lives. It must be so sort of rewarding. It is. It is. It really is when you hear stories like that. And certainly, you know, all of us have a moment when we've been face to face with a, someone from the communities we work in and heard their personal story. Um, for me, I met a, a young girl here many years ago when we were starting up called Lakshmi. Um, and she was living in North Bangalore. She'd moved there when she was 12 years old with her husband. Um, she was married very young from a rural village. And um, at that stage, she was 26 years old, which was the same age that I was. But she was living in this tent in North Bangalore with four young children, just desperately trying to give them a good living and, and education so that she could get them out of this cycle that she was in. Um, and I was personally, I mean, confronted at first to just think, you know, at the same age, I was university educated and traveling the world and trying to find an opportunity to start my own business. And, and here she was just desperately trying to get her four kids through schooling. Um, and those kinds of stories, I guess, do continue to push us and, and motivate us to keep going. And um, it's, it's incredible that the, uh, the model we have impacts so many people. I mean, we're, we're coming up to hitting our 100,000th person um, in a couple of months' time, and that's just phenomenal to think about the numbers we've achieved so far. That's incredible. And in how many years, Alexi? Um, four years. In four years. I, I, you've, it sounds like you've sort of nailed down the model for, for where you are now. I wonder how sort of scalable this is. You know, is this a model that might work across Africa, for instance? Yeah, well, look, we've already scaled to three more cities in India. Um, so we're in four different cities at the moment and kind of working on getting those other cities up um, so that they are self-sustaining as, as a priority. And through that, we were able to bring in a whole lot of different products as we as we got to meet different people. And, um, you know, many people would say moving states in India is akin to moving countries in Europe. Um, so we're seeing an incredible amount of diversity. We now operate in four or five languages, really. Um, so we're dealing with all of that at the moment. Um, but certainly um, we have always had, you know, the vision or sentiment that this model should be able to translate outside of India as well. And if, yeah. if we can really nail that scale here um, within India, that there's no reason it couldn't move to other environments as long as it's um, as long as it fits the, you know, the living conditions and um, the kinds of needs that those people are facing. 
Um, yeah. We actually do have, uh, I mentioned SolarAid before, we've got a couple of partners who work in Africa and we tend to actually at the moment just um, communicate, you know, if there's opportunities coming our way that are Africa-based, we'll just pass them on to them. They've been operating there for over a decade and have a lot of knowledge in that region that we don't have. Yeah. Um, so it's also really promising that there's a lot of us out there who are all sort of gaining momentum and able to share that so we can reach these impact, reach and impact these people faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, there's so many sort of complexities involved in in that value chain and 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 how you're working on the ground and and connecting all the dots really to sort of support people. I mean, if there's some things that you've kind of learned along the way in the last four years, what what are the kind of the, the big lessons that you've learned if you had your time again that you you'd kind of do things differently? I often have said that um, the naivety works in your favour a little bit. I mean, we've setting up a business in India as, as foreigners is not an easy thing to do and certainly not dealing with the kind of customers um, that we're dealing with. Um, and it's been really, really hard and arduous, but in some ways if we knew all the hardships that were coming up, we may not have done it. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of, kind of interesting to just throw yourself into it and experience that. Um, I guess a big one for anyone listening who's, who's looking at getting into social enterprise or, or maybe looking at growing some, some startup they already have, um, we're, we're going through an interesting process now of, of getting a new layer of expertise in our company. Um, we're four years old and we're definitely moving out of the startup phase and into more of a big operating organization, which is really um, kind of mind-blowing to watch that happen. But we've seen incredible value as we bring in people who've got 15, 20 years experience in different areas of our business that none of us as co-founders have. And while yeah. co-founders obviously have a lot of grit and determination, we were all young and, and on a massive learning curve. And um, I'm just ex- I'm just happy, I guess, that we made that decision to bring bring experienced people into the team, and we're seeing it really pay off now. Um, so it's definitely something for tips for players who are out there and, and sort of considering what to do next with their own enterprises. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's almost sort of letting letting go a bit and letting go of that control a little bit of your of your baby that you've you've created. Yeah, at some point you have to. Um, it, it's just the reality of the game, and we're all in it to see the the organisation thrive. Um, and I think if you've got that mentality, that then you're really you'll be fine, and and you'll make the right decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's one. It's been fascinating to hear about pollinate energy Alex yeah it's you know it's clearly you know really interesting model designed to create as much you know positive impact as possible which is exactly exactly what we love here on the better business show so uh really appreciate you uh sharing your story with us and we wish you all the very best with it no problem thanks for the time Alexi Seller there CEO and co-founder of pollinate energy uh what a fantastic story this week many thanks to Alexi for sharing with us uh, as ever, please do let me know what you think of the show, about Alexi, about Pollinate, about the whole concept. Um, you can connect with me via Twitter, at Tom Idol. You can search me on LinkedIn, Tom Idol, at uh, Narrative Matters. Or you can comment on the page within our show notes on the website. So do that if you feel uh, as if you'd like to. That's it for another week. Um, hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back again for our Friday Five Roundup show on Friday lunchtime, so don't miss that. Uh, But until next time, goodbye.